Well, good morning. My name is John Allen. Welcome to Risen Church. Uh, I hope you guys had a great Easter last week. Um, As I said last week, for us, uh, every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. And so, with that in mind, I want to do that ancient church call and response, that ancient church greeting that we did last week, if you were with us. Um, We're going to do it again this week. So, uh, again, every Sunday for us is Resurrection Sunday. That doesn't mean we don't do a little extra celebrating uh, on Easter, but the celebration doesn't stop when Easter ends, right? The service isn't over. It, it, it impacts the rest of our lives because we are risen because he has risen. And so it defines us. It identifies us. It's who we are. We aren't rising. We are risen in Christ because he has done it and paid it all and conquered sin and death on our behalf. So that's who we are. That's why we do what we do. So if I say he is risen, then you would say That's right. All right. So, let's do it. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. And the resurrection changes absolutely everything, which was the main point of last week's sermon. And we celebrated the resurrection story by honing in on the interaction between the risen Christ and a woman named Mary Magdalene in John chapter 20. And so this morning, we're actually going to continue through this series through the book of John that we're calling uh, Sharing Life Like Christ. And so in this series, we've been looking at the specific interactions that Jesus has with specific people throughout uh, the book of John, or also known as the Gospel of John. And so throughout the series, we've seen Christ's character on display as he interacts with people and, and the, the questions that he asks and the patience that he demonstrates. And we've seen the things that he values and the way that he navigates the insecurities and the egos and the misdirections as he draws people into grace and truth. And as we take in how he interacted with them, then we get to take in the way that he interacts with us now and today because the same Jesus that navigated their insecurities and their egos and their misdirections and their unbelief is the same Jesus, the same living God that interacts with our misdirections, egos, insecurities, and unbelief. But to truly understand this, right, to truly get this, is to experience him for who he is. That's why we've been diving into his word. That's why we understand not who Jesus is as the world presents him, This is why it's so important to just be saturated in the Word of God, right? And to be immersed in gospel community that is standing on the firm foundation of the Jesus of the Bible, not just the plastic Jesus of society, right? And so this is why we look at these things, because the point here is is that this Jesus is who he truly is. He's not how this world presents him. He's not even how we think he might be or or how we think he should be, but how he truly is and who he truly is and what he's truly like. So then sharing the life that we experience in Christ with each other, um, our city and beyond becomes our mission, our purpose. This is who we are and what we do. But in order to share life with others like Christ, which we've all been called to do, it's not just for like the professional pastor type Christians, right? It's for all of us. Um, In order to do that, though, we've got to uh, share life first in Christ. In other words, you can't be a conduit to others of something you have not experienced yourself. And so it's all about the overflow, right? And so 
It's, it's all about beholding Jesus, experiencing Jesus, being loved by Jesus, and being fully satisfied in Christ alone. And so last week we said, again, the resurrection changes everything. Again, we, it, it changes your marriage and the way that you view money and the way that you view your career and relationships and your life goals. The way that you think about both your successes and your failures are changed by the way, or, or, or they're changed by the resurrection. Like it changes the way you deal with pride and shame and rest and anxiety and eternity. And should you accept it, the resurrection does change absolutely everything. The question then is, what if you don't accept it? Like what if you feel like you can't accept it? Like what if you feel yourself or find yourself struggling with doubt and unbelief? Or maybe you don't really even struggle with doubt personally, but you know, maybe someone you know does, right? In this age of skepticism, you hear this all the time. Everybody struggles with doubt. That's not true. That's not true. Oftentimes, I think that's kind of like a, a, a thing that people put out there to make themselves feel better or make it seem like you can never be in a state of faithfulness, right? It is true that you can never come to a place in this world where you're like, perfect, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about knowing that you know that you know that you know that you know deep down in your heart. That's not an unattainable thing. Okay, And so this morning, I want to talk about this, but maybe you do struggle with doubt. Maybe you do struggle with unbelief. And so we want to talk about that this morning, right? And so, um, you know, maybe you know someone that is struggling with these things, and, and you want to help them. And hear me, again, it's okay to struggle. What's not okay is to indulge and not struggle, right? So again, here, hear me. If you don't know this by now, it's okay to not be okay here at Risen Church, right? This is why grace is so important. But it's not okay to just be like, ah, well, everybody does. We're going to see that. We're going to see that this is not, that's, that's not a helpful thing or a loving thing or, or the way that Jesus speaks to these things in our lives. And so this morning, we're going to um, continue through <clears throat> the book of John, and, and we're going to actually continue through John chapter 20, the second part of chapter 20, we're going to hone in on the interaction between the risen Christ and a man named Thomas. So you may know him as Doubting Thomas, right? He's a man who's initially characterized in this passage by doubt and unbelief in the resurrection. And so this morning, I want to look at the way Jesus interacts with Thomas, because the way he interacts with Thomas here gives us a lot of insight into the way that he speaks to doubt and unbelief in our own lives and to those around us. See, sometimes people, again, they try to sugarcoat Thomas's unbelief as though it's not that big of a deal. Everybody does it, right? I've heard sermons that even seem to commend Thomas's approach as if somehow his doubt and unbelief leads to a greater form of faith, which is not true. We're about to see that that's not at all what's happening here. I want you to see that ultimately Thomas shows an irrational, even willful unbelief that's far from commended by Jesus. And yet, Jesus shows him so much mercy, and he meets him right where he's at. And he does it in only the way that Jesus can. 
And it shows us that if he's willing to meet Jesus, I'm sorry, if Jesus is willing to meet Thomas in that way, he's willing to meet us in the same way and those around us. And he does it in a way that only Jesus can. And he does it as a show of mercy. He doesn't dismiss Thomas. He doesn't only pursue those who believe and just leave him out. Nor is Jesus offended by his unbelief. But Jesus does not pamper Thomas' unbelief either. And he certainly doesn't commend him for it. Again, what we're going to see is Jesus meets him there. And he loves him there. And he meets him even in his isolated fear and unbelief. And so what I want you to get this morning, if you get nothing else, here's what I want you to get. Faith isn't blind. Unbelief is. Faith sees through the lies that suppress the truth. Faith isn't blind. Unbelief is. Faith sees through the lies that suppress the truth. So we're going to walk through John chapter 20, verse 19 through 31. And as we do, we're going to hone in on three ways that Jesus speaks to doubt and unbelief. The first thing we're going to see is that Jesus speaks to the heart. And the second thing is that Jesus meets you where you are. And then the third thing is that Jesus gives you like faith eyes to see the lies that suppress the truth. So turn with me now to John chapter 20, verse 19, and we're going to look at the first thing that Jesus speaks to, which is the heart. So verse 19. Here we go. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Now this is way more than just like a simple greeting, right? He's not just like, peace, what's up? Right? That's, it's, there's way more intentionality here, okay? Let's remember the context of what's going on. Look at Sunday evening. On Friday, Jesus was crucified and then buried in a tomb. While, while most of the disciples at this point is scattered in fear, okay? And so then on Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene discovers that his body is missing from the tomb, and she runs back to tell the other disciples, uh, and John and Peter then run back to find Jesus and, and see for themselves. And then they find that she's right. The tomb's empty. John even begins to believe at this point that Jesus has risen from the dead. And then Mary even encounters the risen Christ and has an entire conversation with him. And we looked at that interaction last week on Easter. And then she went back and she told the other disciples what she experienced and encountered. All that took place that morning, right? That was Sunday morning. And so here they are, and they're barricaded behind closed and locked doors in fear. And so their hearts would have been riddled with fear and unbelief, and many were no doubt dealing with the shame of both their fear and their abandonment of Jesus. That would have been a deep shame. They probably didn't expect what went down to go down, and what it did was trigger a lot of confusion and fear in their hearts, and then the shame that comes with their actions that would be plaguing them at this point. Remember, Peter in his pride thought he was ready to die for Jesus, but then he ended up blatantly denying he even knew him, and he did it three times. So it's important to take in this scene. Like Their hearts are far from rest at this point. 
They're far from peace, and they're far from faith. It's almost as though this locked door symbolizes the, the many obstacles between their fearful and confused hearts and faith in the risen Christ. Now, most people think that the barrier to faith in Christ is your intellect. I think that's often why people think they doubt more than they do, because they have not figured it all out. Therefore, they must be doubting. But that's not necessarily what's going on. You see, it's not the barrier to faith in Christ isn't necessarily your intellect. Most issues of unbelief aren't head issues. They're almost always heart issues. And their hearts are fearful. They're hiding, they're confused, and they're ashamed. And they're locked behind closed doors. So I want you to see this morning that this is the state of every single human heart outside of faith in Christ. No matter what it might seem like, at the end of the day, humanity is insecure and petrified without the love and the grace of God that only comes through Christ alone. And yet here, at the end of this glorious day of resurrection... Jesus comes and he speaks directly to their fearful and unfaithful hearts. And the first thing he says to them is, peace be with you. Don't you think they needed to hear that? Maybe some of you need to hear that this morning. He doesn't say, how dare you? Right? He doesn't say, I found you. He doesn't say, how could you? He doesn't say, what were you guys thinking? He doesn't chastise them. He doesn't shame them. He's not offended by them. In fact, he's there because he just paid everything for their offense at the cross. And he's conquered what they deserved through the resurrection. So now he meets them where they are and he brings them peace. Just as Isaiah 53, 5 prophesied he would 700 years before this, which says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Again, the word for peace here is shalom. It means wholeness, restoration, and reconciliation at a deep heart level. You see, until the heart is dealt with, it doesn't matter what your eyes see. So again, the first thing that Jesus speaks to is our hearts. First and foremost. See, once he engages us on a heart level, then we're able to see him for who he truly is. You see, when you, what you see doesn't dictate what you believe. We often get this way backwards. This goes for everyone, Christians and non-Christians. Seeing is not believing. Believing is seeing. What you live by, what you indulge in, what you align with is what will affect how you view the world around you. Remember that the word believe actually comes from the old English word that means by this I live, right? So if you live by bitter resistance to the reality of God or Jesus, then it doesn't matter what your eyes see. You're going to reject him, period, it's not, uh, it, it's not unbiased skepticism. It's blind irrationality. Again, our society tends to think in, uh, that belief and unbelief is only a matter of the mind. But Jesus, in his mercy, speaks to both our hearts and our minds. Look at verse 20. 
When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. It's like a peace sandwich, right? He speaks peace to their hearts, and he opens their eyes through faith, and they they were glad, they were rejoicing. Now they can see him for who he truly is, and they're rejoicing. And then again, he speaks peace to them. Like, why? Why do you need the peace sandwich? Why? We, all, we still need the peace sandwich. Because we're forgetful. This is why we gather together and we remind each other of what we have in Christ. That he's spoken peace to you. Restoration. This world will cause you to lose sight of it. It'll, it'll suck you into doubt and unbelief and then be like, ha ha, you are condemned. Jesus still speaks peace to you. And he says, "Uh uh-uh, don't listen to that mess. Don't believe that. Don't live by that. Lean in. Don't believe, rather, I'm sorry, don't disbelieve, but rather believe. And so Jesus emphasizes it again, that all the hostility between them is gone. And then he speaks to their identity here and their purpose as the children of the Most High God. Look at this. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Not only do you have peace and restoration, but you've been empowered with this great commission. You're entrusted with all the responsibilities that I have, you've been given also. That's what he's doing here. I am sending, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. Remember, he calls them brothers before. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, quick side note to address that. He's not telling them to be unforgiving here. That's not what's going on. This gets kind of twisted sometimes. He's commissioning them with the authority to delineate between true believers who have received the grace of God that's offered in Christ alone and those who may twist the truth to fit their own agendas. That's what he's doing. Like this isn't him saying that, that only like individual believers or, or, or even churches have the authority to forgive or not forgive people, okay? Like, He's saying here that as the church proclaims the gospel message of forgiveness of sins in the power of the Holy Spirit, those who believe in Jesus have their sins forgiven. And those who do not believe in him do not have their sins forgiven. Like what we're seeing here is simply a reflection of what's already true. In fact, the Greek phrase here for they are forgiven and it is withheld are both in the perfect tense. In other words, it could also be translated, they have been forgiven and it has been withheld, right? So the church is simply given the authority here to recognize what's already true, okay? And so that's, that's, that's again, that's a whole sermon in and of itself, but I want you to see that this morning as, uh, that just so you don't read that and think something crazy. That's why we, we go verse by verse often. I don't like leaving stuff out and then people are just like, what is that about? Um, But again, that's a whole sermon in itself. What I want you to see this morning, though, is how Jesus speaks peace to their hearts, how he opens their eyes in faith, and he empowers them with the Spirit to proclaim this good news of salvation through grace that, that Christ provides. So, we even see here, by the way, 
all three members of the Trinity at work. As the Father sent Jesus, so Jesus sends his disciples, equipping and empowering them with the Holy Spirit. Kind of cool. So what we see here is, again, a picture and presentation of the straightforward gospel message. That's what this is, right? God became a man. He lived the life we couldn't live. He died the death we deserve to die. And then he conquered death in the grave. And he paved the way to eternal life through the resurrection. And it's not just an eternal life that starts one day when we die, but it's an eternal life that starts with the moment we place our faith and our hope in Christ and we're filled with his Holy Spirit, which he's talking about here, which empowers us into the calling and the purpose and the commission he's placed on our lives. It's not just about being rescued from hell. It's about being reaffirmed, recreated, reestablished, and renewed and, and commissioned into this mission that is just above all else which is to go and make disciples who make disciples, right? From the neighborhood to the nations. That's what it's all about. This is what we partner in, amen? And so that's what's happening here, right? It's the empowering Holy Spirit that, that he's breathing on them. And so look here at verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. All right? So we don't know why he wasn't there. But I... I don't think it's an insignificant detail, especially given the emphasis the New Testament places on not forsaking the gathering, right? So I don't think it's insignificant. We don't really know what's going on. Like maybe he didn't want to be seen with the other disciples. Maybe it wasn't just that he didn't want to be associated with Jesus. He didn't want to be associated with anybody that was associated with Jesus for fear of getting crucified himself. I don't know. I don't know that's what's going on. Maybe he was with them and he just stepped out to get some air, you know? I don't know. What we do know is that the other disciples love him enough to testify to him about what he missed. Look at verse 25. So the other disciples told him, because he wasn't there, we've seen the Lord. Remember, this is Sunday night. Like, the resurrection just happened that morning. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. What? I want you to notice that they hear appeal to Thomas's physical eyes. Right? Not his heart. Like, they're like, we saw him with our physical eyes. Thomas is like, oh, I haven't seen him with my physical eyes. He's thinking about the physical only. They said, we've seen the Lord. And they had. And, and Think about it. Any other circumstance, their word would have been enough for him. Remember, Thomas has seen miracle after miracle. He's walked with Jesus and these disciples. They would have been the most trusted people on the planet to him. He had no real rational reason to doubt them. They weren't liars and cheats. And they just witnessed miracle after miracle as they followed God in the flesh. They've seen some crazy stuff. And so Thomas isn't just articulating skepticism here. This is willful and obstinate unbelief. And I want you to see, it's totally illogical. Like, this isn't a struggle that Thomas has. This is a position he's taken. But why? Why? He even makes a vow issuing an ultimatum. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger, my finger, 
into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. This is not a man who's logically working through the information he's given. This vow is the symptom of a fearful disillusion and even bitter heart that's suppressing the truth for a lie. There's a scene in the book, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia, um, where the youngest sibling, Lucy, uh, she discovers a magical land called Narnia by walking through the back of an upstairs wardrobe in a house they're playing in. And her brother Edmund also discovers this magical land, but when she tells everybody about it, Edmund denies that it ever really happened, right? And so Lucy's extremely upset because nobody believes her. Like, none of her brothers and sisters believe her, and, and they, they say she's a liar. They think she's a liar. And, and so it hurts, her, it hurts her heart. She's like, why don't you believe me? And later, the children are talking with this wise professor that owns the home that they're in, and uh, they assume that the professor's going to side with Edmund because, you know, the claim Lucy's making is so outrageous, But the professor uses true logic, and he asks them if Lucy has ever lied to them before. And then they say no, and so he asks between the two of them, Lucy and Edmund, which has the history of being more trustworthy? And it's clearly Lucy, not Edmund. And so the professor then deduces that it would be logical, or sorry, that it would be illogical for them to believe Edmund over Lucy. And so Thomas is here calling all the disciples who are gathering together and they're testifying to what they've seen, liars. They would have been his best friends. They would have been the most trustworthy people in his life, but he still rejects their testimony. Not only that, remember Thomas has seen, again, countless miracles while following Jesus. And he even has a category for resurrection after just having seen a week before this, Lazarus being raised from the dead. That would have been fresh for him. He watched it happen. And yet he still won't believe. Why? Some might say he's a victim of his own personality. Just the way he's wired. Right? I'm just a skeptic. As if somehow he's not responsible. But I don't, I don't think that's what we're seeing here. I don't think that's what we're presented with here at all. There is more going on than a personality quirk. This is a heart issue. Maybe for Thomas, his heart issue goes beyond fear or shame. It may be that he's struggling with the disillusionment of what he thought Jesus would do, and he didn't. Now, Thomas was likely looking for a physical salvation from the Romans and the corrupt Jewish leaders of their time. But Jesus brought first a spiritual salvation, And of course, he promises both a physical and spiritual salvation at his return, but what he brought is not what Thomas would have expected. Again, Jesus will indeed bring justice with him at his return, and everybody's going to get what they deserve, but without the cross, if everybody gets what they deserve, nobody gets salvation. Right? That's why the cross was necessary, but Thomas likely missed this, as did many of the other disciples. Again, that's why I think they were so confused. That's why they they ran and abandoned. And yet, we all deal with these things very differently. Right? Like a few months ago, I was doing a little grappling, and I injured my right shoulder. And I didn't think it was a big deal at the time. It seemed like just like a little joint slip. It happens sometimes. It wasn't like a full, like, dislocation. 
Um, and I didn't really think anything of it, but then it slowly started to like seize up on me. And for some reason, the muscles in my shoulder decided to overreact and aggressively protect that injured area. And so the issue now is that this injured area is, is actually fine now, but the muscles continue to seize up and clench so much so that I can hardly raise my arm. And, and they're doing that in an effort to protect what they think is an injured area, but they've decided to so overreact and protect it that the injured area is fine, they're now causing more issues than the original injury. So I've intentionally, now I have to like stretch and I have to rehabilitate the area and to get things loosened up. And it's like I need my shoulder to believe me when I say, you're okay now. Right? Like calm down. It's all right. Like let go. You're causing more issues than you're helping. And that's how our hearts can be also. We experience pain. We experience loss or some form of emotional trauma. And either consciously or subconsciously, we vow to never let it happen again. And in an effort to guard those areas of our lives, we end up causing more issues. You ever heard hurt people hurt people? So we close and lock the doors in fear. And we vow never to be vulnerable like that again. To never let anyone close to us again. Or to put ourselves in a place where you might be embarrassed or exposed or tricked or hurt or taken advantage of like that ever again. Never again. You ever said that before? Sometimes we even blame God for allowing those things to happen. And then our perspective of God gets warped by those experiences. Deep-seated, heart-level bitterness and suspicion can then take root in a way that's often so deep, it's too deep to even process logically. And then it begins to manifest in ways that seem so irrational. And yet, facing that truth is often too much for our insecure hearts to handle. And so we harden our hearts in bitterness and we hide and we isolate in shame and we lock the doors in fear. Nobody gets in. You see, outside the grace of God in Christ is just outside of His grace. Like, it's the human condition. Do you see this? This is humanity. We all deal with it in different ways, but outside of His grace... And his affirmation, this is the state of our hearts and our lives. Guys, it's not ultimately about evidence and intellectual arguments. This is why nobody ever received Christ because of an intellectual argument. It's always a heart issue. Now, of course, the intellectual discussions are helpful, and I'm here for it all. I love it. But only insofar as they clear the weeds off of the path of your hearts, right? Because that's where Jesus meets us. Which leads me to the second way that Jesus speaks to our doubt and unbelief. Which is Jesus meets you where you are. Look how good is he. We don't deserve that. But he loves you that much. Look at verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. And Thomas was with them. So it's been a full week, eight days later. Now you might think, wouldn't that be seven days later? And it would if you weren't counting the eighth day, which was the new day. Again, it's a day that symbolizes the new creation, right? 
And so here they are, eight days later. It's Sunday evening again. All the other disciples have experienced the risen Christ. They would have been talking about it and connecting the dots about his resurrection and what it meant. They'd be rejoicing and praying and worshiping. But for Thomas, man, it would have been like extremely isolating, right? Like it'd be like outside looking in. And the doors of faith and revelation are just locked. But the only other disciple who hadn't seen the risen Christ at this point would have been Judas Iscariot. Not the company you're looking for. Right? Now, I'd even be willing to bet that the other disciples who had seen Jesus were praying and asking Jesus to then reveal himself to Thomas the way that he'd revealed himself to them. Like, maybe you've prayed a prayer like this. I know I have. Maybe you're praying a prayer like that now. Like something like, God, show yourself to them in a way that you showed yourself to me. Like, meet him where he is, even in his unbelief. Speak peace to his heart. Forgive him for his unbelief. Show him mercy and let him put his fingers in the holes in your hands and the scars in your side. He doesn't deserve to, but God, just be merciful. You ever cried out for someone like that? I invite you to if you haven't. Look at verse 26. Although the doors were locked, see that? Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. I bet the other disciples were not only thrilled to see Jesus again, but also to see Thomas seeing Jesus with them. Right? Like it's like when you're in worship together, or you're in the Word, or you you know that Jesus' presence is there, and it's just you you know it's thick. And then you look and you see your unbelieving friend; he's there with you, and he's starting to click. Right? He's starting to realize that it's all real. So you're you're like worshiping Jesus, and you're looking at your friend, and you're like, ah, see? Right? That's what I think is going on here. Like, I, I think John, James, Peter, Mary, they're all like, Jesus! And then they look at Thomas like, told you! Right? And so then for a third time, Jesus declares peace. Right? Shalom. He declares it over them. He speaks peace. He speaks wholeness. He speaks fullness. He speaks restoration to their hearts. Hostility's gone. And he speaks it to Thomas as well. He speaks right to his heart, right there. He meets him right where he's at, and in spite of the doubt and unbelief and even that bitter vow, he meets him there, and he speaks to him there. And as if that wasn't enough, verse 27, then he said to Thomas, how dare you make a vow like that? Get out of my... That's not what he says. He said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus does not commend him for his doubt. He doesn't tell him it's okay. He doesn't say, oh, I understand. He doesn't say, hey, buddy, no problem. I probably wouldn't have believed it either. It's not at all what he does. He mercifully, graciously meets him where he is and shows sheer compassion and undeserved mercy. And he says, do not disbelieve, but believe. Don't give that doubt or unbelief even an inch. It'll blind you. It doesn't say Thomas does it even, by the way. Notice that. Oftentimes in passages like this, when it says that, then it'll say it again. It says, and then Thomas put out his hand and touched and felt that it doesn't say that. 
He was right on. You know what it says? Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Right then. I don't, I don't, think, I don't think he needed to. I don't think he just was like, I think he kind of in a way was just like, what was I thinking? Which, by the way, he answers him, my Lord and my God. Which is the only other time somebody proclaims that Jesus himself is God. Like, like this, the only other person that does this is the formerly blind man that declares it in John 9. In other words, his eyes are opened. Thomas's spiritual eyes have now been opened in a way that only Jesus could do. Years ago, I was doing college ministry at, at Duke University in, in North Carolina, and we kept seeing like, this like, mini Chinese revival. Uh, it, it, like, it was like every Chinese student we met just radically came to salvation in Christ. It, it was really amazing, and, and I, it got to the point where I was like, if I met a Chinese student on campus, I just kind of expected them to inevitably <laughs> surrender their lives to Jesus. Like, that's how powerful it was. Um, and one of those students was a girl named Melody, and she'd grown up as an atheist and, and was now in her senior year as a pretty brilliant physics major at Duke. And she was so radically transformed by the gospel that she took it upon herself then to introduce every Chinese freshman to Jesus. And so we had, uh, we'd been praying for one student in particular named David Wong, and uh, Melody had invited him to have lunch with the two of, or sorry, Melody invited me to have lunch with the two of them to talk about Jesus. And so David was extremely skeptical about the whole thing, and uh, naturally, and, and given his background and his state of his heart and what he had been indulging in his whole life. And so David is extremely skeptical, and so the only reason he even humored any of it was because he had respected Melody so much. So he was confused, though, by why someone so intelligent like Melody could believe something so outrageous to him like Christianity, especially the resurrection part. So finally, I said, so what would it take for you to believe, right? Like this guy had more faith in himself than anything. In fact, the whole reason he was at Duke is he was determined to go through by, what, what is it, uh, biochemical engineering or something like that. Some kind of like, well, some, you know, his goal was to eradicate death, like legitimately. That was his thing. He was like, shoot for the moon. I'm like, so you think that is possible? And he was like, yeah, I do. And I was like, oh, well, somebody beat you to it already. <laughs> right? <laughs> and so like, he, this is the power of the resurrection. I'm like, this is actually your every hope has been accomplished. And so finally, I'm like, you know, what would it take, what would it take for you to believe? And, and he said, I, I don't even know. And so I pointed to a cup on the table, and I said, if I were to speak to that cup and it started just suddenly floating in the air in Jesus' name, would you believe that Jesus was then Lord? Right? And his eyes got kind of big, and he, he like looks at me, and he's like, and he looks at the cup, and he's like, for real? Like, are you really that? And I'm like, no, seriously. Like, if that's what it takes for you to believe, I believe that God loves you enough that he would make that cup float. And then I said, but would that even make you believe? Or would you find some other way to justify it? He looked at me, and he looked at the cup, which I thought was funny. And he, and he kind of looked down with his eyebrows furrowed, and he says, honestly, I'd probably find some other way to justify it. So I said, is that truly rational? And he said no. And he realized that he had this bias against Jesus and his heart wasn't actually open. 
So I said, what would cause you to believe? And he said, I don't even know. But I could tell his heart was just shaken. Like he was truly shaken by the whole experience. And so I asked him if he would pray with me and ask God to meet him right where he is and to show him the truth in a way that only Jesus can. And so he said he would, and so we then prayed. About a week later, I'm sitting in a restaurant with our student leaders at the time, and, and we're talking about something. I don't remember what it was, and I noticed that Melody's crying. Like, she's, like, crying, crying. Like, I still remember the tears on the menu. And, and I, I was like, great, you know, I've, I've offended Melody, something I'm saying, you know. <laughs> and so I'm like, are you okay? And she says, I feel like something's going on with David. Like, I, I see him, and I just, like, I have a vision of him, and he's before the cross, right? And so we, I, I'm like, well, let's pray. Like, so we stop everything, and we pray for David. And then we continue the meeting, and we carried on, and, and Melody then texted David, and she said, you know, she felt like something's going on with him, and she asked if he was okay, and he texted back with saying, quote, no, nothing is okay. I can no longer deny that Jesus is Lord. See, David had actually been in his dorm room. Yeah, you can clap for that. (laughs) David had been in his dorm room, and he was reading about Jesus, and he was trying to disprove him, and instead he ran right into him. Like, I wasn't trying to take on this scientist kid. Like, I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) But I know Jesus, and I know he knows, and he knows how to meet you. I honestly still don't know what it was that did it. But I do know that Jesus did. In fact, he met him right where he was in only the way that Jesus could. He is the risen king, and he can walk right through those locked doors of your hearts, even in a Duke dorm room, right? Which leads me to the final point. Jesus gives you faith to see the lies that suppress the truth. Look at verse 29. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Bertrand Russell was a famous atheist philosopher, and he was uh, once asked, what will you say to God when you meet him face to face? Now, this is a guy who lived for, until he, I think he died, was about 95 years old, and he lived for, for basically like the majority of the uh, 20th century, late 1800s to um, mid-1900s, and he has really, his philosophy has impacted our world in a pretty profound way, and not a good way, Right? And one day someone said to this heavily atheist philosopher, what will you say to God when you meet him face to face? And his response was, I'll look him in the eyes and tell him he didn't give me enough evidence. Romans 1, 18 through 22 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, 
So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. See, like Thomas, we've all been given more than sufficient evidence for the truth, and yet in our sin, we suppress the truth. Some may like to believe that Thomas' experience of seeing the risen Christ is the more blessed condition, but that's not what Jesus says. Like there in verse 29, he makes it clear, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Like theirs is the more blessed and more joyful condition than those who would rely upon their physical eyes. Like having learned how to rely upon the eyes of faith is the true form of sight because it's the form of seeing that reveals the lies that we've believed that suppress the truth. Bertrand Russell was blinded. In fact, by the time he was four, I think five years old, his mom and dad had died. His grandfather had adopted him, and then his grandfather died. He had so much going on in his life. When you look at his life and what has taken place, there was such a twisted perspective that had blinded him that he clearly indulged in bitterness. And so here, what, what faith does is it opens our eyes to see those things and to see through those things. And we learn to rely upon those eyes of faith as that true form of sight that's suppressing the truth. Or, or that uh, opens our eyes to what, how we've suppressed the truth. Author John Bloom, he put it like this. Uh, it's perfect. Faith is not blind. Unbelief is blind. Faith sees a reality beyond what eyes can see. A reality that God reveals to us which is more important, in fact, more real than what we can see with our physical eyes. Hebrews 11, 1 through 3 tells it like this. Now faith is the assurance. Say assurance. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction. Say conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. This is something God commends. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are invisible. Or, I'm sorry, that are visible. And so faith is highly logical. It is illogical to assume that this universe suddenly sprang out of nothing into existence. That's illogical. Like faith sees through to the source that we are a part of a much bigger reality than what our physical eyes can see. Faith is like spiritual sonar that allows us to see below the surface of the water, right? If you're like on a ship and there's, there's obstacles or obstructions and you can't see them under the water, you might shipwreck, right? It reveals that there's more going on when we operate by faith. And so I think this is what Paul actually means when he talks about those who made a shipwreck of their faith in 1 Timothy 1. Like they only gave attention to what they could see. They only indulged what they could see, touch, taste, feel. Yet it's all about them and their capacities. And so they're navigating by sight rather than recognizing that there's more happening below the surface. And so it's important to see that Thomas' unbelief is far from commended here. Not at all. Like Jesus is not affirming Thomas's excuses here. He's not saying they're there. You really don't have enough evidence, do you, buddy? Sorry. That's not what he's doing. That's not at all what's happening. Hear me. There is nothing wrong with asking good questions. All right? I want you to know this is not the church that's just going to say because the Bible says so. All right? 
Like the goal here is not ignorance or naivety, okay? Or excuse me, naivete, however you say that. I feel so pretentious, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> but Proverbs 25, 2 tells us, like, it is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search them out. But hear me, the way in which we do that is very different from the way the world does. Like, the way we do it is, why is the grass green, Daddy? Right? Like, why is the sky blue, Daddy? Like, why is there evil in this world, Daddy? You'd be surprised. He might actually have a really good answer. But we don't put him on trial as though we are God and he needs to give us answers. That's not the way to do it. And, start, and yet, see how merciful he is because that's exactly what Thomas did. The way we seek the truth is like a child who's asking daddy for questions, but it, it, like the, the path of one that this is the path that leads to wisdom, right? This is how it leads to intimacy and truth. The path of the other leads to resentment and isolation and bitterness. And yet, he meets Thomas in his sin, and he meets him there, and he speaks to his heart, and he opens his spiritual eyes. But hear this. Thomas is not presented as the example to follow. Jesus presents his desire to see with his physical eyes as the wrong kind of sight to ask for. Okay? Instead of vowing, unless I see, I will never believe, Thomas' interaction with Jesus teaches us instead to pray that desperate prayer of the man in Mark 9, verse 24, who prayed, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Let me tell you something. God will meet you there. He will mercifully and graciously and overwhelmingly meet you there. Just like he met David Wong there. And so that is what Jesus declares to be the more blessed or blessed. There's that pretentiousness coming on that. Blessed. <laughs> but that's that, that is, again, that is the more blessed condition. Because it's the opening of your spiritual eyes to see things as they truly are and to see him as he truly is. 1 Peter 1, 8-9 says this, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Like this is the heart behind the word of God. Like he's not an ethereal and personal God made in the image of your own imagination. We're beholding his character and his nature and his ways through the testimony of these men and these God-breathed scripture. And we recognize that we, we then experience it for ourselves, right? We share life in Christ and then we go and share life like Christ. Again, the reason John and the other disciples are providing this written testimony, it, 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 the, and again, but it stood the test of 2,000 years almost. Like, and he does this. So, th this testimony is there so that you and I may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Don't disbelieve. Believe. And yes, you do have the capacity for it. Let's pray.